Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn from uh, Sunny Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller from a mild, not totally sunny southeast London. And we want to introduce our fascinating guest who's calling in from the far reaches of the United States. Indeed, we welcome Siddhartha Vadianathan. Siddhartha is a very distinguished journalist, but um, we welcome him especially on the podcast today because he's just republished one of the most significant cricket books and important cricket books of the modern age. We'll talk about that later. We're first um, going to ask his response to the changes in the laws which the MCC has taken it on itself to uh, make and announce, which will come into force in October, the ones that were just uh, announced this week. One of the, um, probably the most contentious, is that they've decided to legitimise Bowler running out the non-striking batsman when he backs up too far, or, as you might say, tries to steal a run unfairly, uh, or is named after Venu Mankad, perhaps rather unfairly, who did this in a test match uh, in Australia in 1947. Anyway, it's now been um, legitimised. Um, what's your feeling about that, Sir Arthur? Well, I, it was always within the laws. Uh, so what they've done is they've removed it from the unfair section of play into the run-out section of play. The ironic part of this is it was in the unfair section of play because it was considered unfair for the batsman to steal a run hmm. and not because it was considered unfair for the bowler to actually dismiss said batsman. Uh, but it always struck me as something interesting that it was called the Mankad and not the Brown, hmm. who was the batsman who Vinu Mankar actually dismissed, Bill Brown, oh, Billy Brown, in Australia in 1948. Now, had it been called the Brown, would we have looked at this dismissal completely differently and said that it is the batsman's fault for moving out and not the bowler's, you know? Uh, so it's, it's an interesting one. Uh, I don't think it should have ever been... I mean, I don't think... I think there was a lot of stigma against it. And, uh, you know, some bowlers choose, chose to do it, some bowlers didn't. And I don't think that those who did should have necessarily been vilified the way many have been in the past. Can I put the opposite point of view, Siddhartha, which is it's, there's always been an idea of sportsmanship about cricket, the rules of the game, playing the game. And it's, it was accepted that it was sort of the batsman was taking a liberty, but the, the protocol was that the bowler would always warn him. He saw him doing this in proper practice. He'd say, watch out, next time I am going to remove the bales if you're out of your crease. And so it, what it brought into the game, uh, this idea, this, this idea that you should warn the batsman, which has now been uh, got rid of, was the idea of gentlemanly or proper play. Well, that's one way to look at it. But I don't think that I would necessarily go that far when we're talking about an actual law in the game. Because what that does is that it puts the onus on the bowler then to take this uh, certain gentlemanly approach to something that he feels is genuinely unfair. Uh, Ashwin, for instance, the Indian off-spinner who has off taken a very strong view about this for a long time, feels that it is genuinely an advantage for some batsmen, especially in 2020 cricket and in short-form cricket, to take that lead. And he says that when a game comes down to one run or two runs, that 
particular advantage that they have makes a significant difference. And so he has a very strong point on this. And I do feel that one shouldn't be necessarily burdening the bowlers with this extra expectation to be gentlemanly um, when it is written in the laws. It's in baseball, Siddhartha. I mean, it's in a, a pitcher doesn't have to pitch the ball if he sees a batter trying to steal a base. He can th- just switch around and throw him out, can't he? If he's quick witted enough. Yes, and it's a pretty common form of dismissal. That, mm. uh, in fact, uh, many many pitchers are given extra credit for being able to spot the batter from who is taking off and getting them out. Mm. You see, this is an, this worries me though, Richard. These American analogies. I mean, the Britain is becoming American enough as it is. I'd add one further dimension. Well, I'll just make another point that um, stealing a run, setting off too early, can be very important when you're trying to farm the strike as well. It's not just the run that's gained. It might be switching the bat. You know, it might be stealing the run at the last ball of the over, so that the um, you know the the good batsman faces the next one. Well, I feel I'm outnumbered by two to one, which is normally how we are. What about the new law 18? Batters, it used to be the case, um, we were all brought up to this, that if a batsman was caught, uh, or bats, batter was caught, I should now properly say, uh, whether what determined who would face the next ball was whether or not the two batters had crossed. And now they've obliterated that, uh, and the new batter will be the one who who comes in um, as if the bat uh, had been bold, the person who was out had been bold. Yeah, I, I was actually, that was quite an interesting rule to start with. I always found that intriguing that cricket had this rule and it added definitely added a bit to the charm of the game because it would in, involve tactics like, uh, I'm going to get out this ball, but I'm going to hit it high so that you're on strike the next ball. But I think... In a way, I also understand why they're doing this, because they want to give the bowlers some credit in taking the wicket. Because what happens is that if you need two runs in two balls, and a bowler actually bowls a ball and gets a wicket, but the ball goes high, which means that the set batsman is then on strike when they need two runs of one ball. But in this case, in the new case, the new batsman, or the batter, as you said, would come in and face that ball. So I think... It does add a bit to the advantage of the bowler, but you're right. It takes away a bit of the idiosyncrasy of that particular yeah. law. I do think that there is um, there is a charm of cricket and an irrationality about some of it, which is like all the sorts of fielder's positions, you know, third man and point and so on. They, they, they sort of have a history and a magic to them, which I think this is a bit rational. And one, one of the things which I really troubles me about this from the MCC, is it draws attention with a- approval to this new law, or I would call it rule, I don't uh, actually nowadays, because it was first trialled by the ECB, the English Cricket Board, a lamentable institution which has lost its way, in the 100. And to allow the 100, this sort of sh- very short-term aberration in the game of cricket, to determine what the laws are going to be, is very much like allowing the tail to wag the dog, isn't it? Well, in a certain extent, you should be happy, Peter, because the 100 is being used as a trial venue for all these other laws of cricket. So people are not actually perhaps taking it as seriously as they think they should. They're just using it as a trial. So I'm not too fussed about it. (laughs) Richard, come to my rescue, please. 
I'm I'm sorry to lose I'm sorry to lose that particular rule. Did the batsman um, law? Excuse me, lose that particular provision? Did the batsman cross? It does add a little bit of tactic to the game. I hate to make another baseball analogy, but it's a little bit like a sacrificed fly when you can actually score runs on a on a sacrificed fly when the when the um, when the batter is caught. It's almost a tactic of the game. It just adds a little bit more of um, a dimension to. Um, to, you know, to run when they change ends and balls, and when the ball is caught in in, in the air, um, I think the one or two other laws that are new laws that are quite interesting and, and logical. Judging a wide, a wide used to be judged where the batter originally stood, and they've now recognised that um, batters move around so much in the crease, particularly in um, in short forms of the game, that they're now calling wides some where the batter ends up rather than where he started from. I think that's quite quite sensible. It is, especially when you have uh, players playing the reverse uh, strokes quite often, as well as moving around. So I think uh, it's important that uh, this rule is particularly important. And, and it, I don't think it affects test cricket that much because no. they are lenient on wides anyway. So this mm. is mostly a rule for the shorter, shorter forms. I accept this. I think this is sensible. It reflects the way the game has changed and, it, and it's... Uh, orderly and it's well overdue actually also another logical one i think is um would have affected that famous incident of shakua rana and mike gatting but um unfair movement by the fielding side used to be if a fielder was moved unfairly it uh, used to be just a dead ball um no penalty at all it's now going to attract a five-run penalty i think that's reasonable for for unfair play if it is if it really is unfair play i agree about that too yeah should have been introduced, sort of, it should always have been that, that rule. And one other um, has implications, I'm not sure have totally been thought through. Uh, it's the provision about when a dog runs onto the field of play or there's some other obstruction from outside, and this is now going to result in a dead ball. I just wonder if that's going to cause just a little bit more delay in play, and I just wonder if that encourages fans and dogs belonging to the losing side to obstruct play more often. Oh, well, I, I think that is taking a bit too far. If uh, fans are now going to be running onto the field just to obstruct play, I think there would be security officials who would take care of that, hopefully. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I mean... I think we would need to wait a bit to see exactly what the problems with this law are. I don't really, uh, I can't really foresee the problem with it. I think it should be okay. But yes, delay in play could be uh, one of the things that could happen even more, which would then have a knock-on effect on over rates and everything else that goes on. So maybe that could be one thing that comes on. But how often does a dog or something run onto the field and then is also hit by the ball. I mean, I don't know. Well, the new law brings play to an instant stop, whereas previously there was an incentive to get on with the game, as if the umpires thought it possible. So uh, we'll see, as you say, we'll see how we'll see how it works out. But I, I fear there may be squads of trained dogs um, um, <laughs> <laughs> smuggled into onto pitches. Um, 
causes a lot of obstruction at the village level and, and the social level. I can tell oh, you. yes, yeah. for sure. It's our guy to cricket. You or most most games are interrupted by the, a, a dog going to see its owner and being shooed away or chased around the wicket. So it's just very deeply relevant to the village cricket, which we I think, play. I think the village cricket uh, needs to have a completely new set of laws that should not be governed by the MCC. We need, for village cricket and amateur cricket, we need a completely new set of laws that we yes. bring. Yeah, <laughs> I think anyway, let's talk about uh, Siddhartha's book. Um, Siddhartha's just uh, published or republished more properly the classic masterpiece by one of the greatest, most important, I think, writers in the history of the game, Mike Marquesi, who died just a few years ago, untimely, at the age of 61, and um, is a formidable figure. War minus the shooting by Mark Marquesi has been re republished with a foreword by the great um, Australian cricket writer Gideon Haig um, uh, and an endorsement by Mike Atherton. Uh, and I have to say it's an enormous contribution to cricket publishing. Thank you just first of all, Siddhartha, for doing this. Uh, I mean, my pleasure. And uh, this was uh, this happened completely by accident. Uh, it was a happy accident. So uh, just like Richard and you, I too have a podcast that talks about cricket and uh, various things related to cricket. And one of the episodes we did was about this book. Uh, and once the podcast came out, a lot of people said, it's a great podcast, but where do we get the book now? We'd love to read it. So I thanks to uh, you know the great uh, sort of cooperation from Mike's uh, partner, Liz, who is uh, a really accomplished uh, barrister in uh, London, uh, thanks to her, who now uh, had, you know, took over from Mike's estate and who was the heir to Mike's estate. Uh, she got back the rights from Penguin, who were the publishers, and then was happy to sell the rights to me. And so I set up a publishing entity called 81 All Out Publishing, which is similar to the name of my podcast, and uh, came out with this book, which uh, I published uh, in November. First of all, uh, Siddhartha, uh, I think just for those who don't know, tell us all about Mike Marquesi. Well, uh, Mike Marquesi grew up in New York uh, in the 60s and then moved to Britain, uh, I think, uh, late in his teens. And then he lived in Britain for the rest of his life. He came to cricket from a completely new perspective. He watched a lot of baseball as a young man, but then when came to cricket and fell in love with it, fell deeply in love with it, uh, as a, I mean, both for the social capital that it provided in a place like Britain, say, in the 70s and 80s, as well as the idiosyncrasy of the game, as we were discussing, the wonderfully different types of people who could actually play cricket. You didn't have to be chiseled and fit uh, to play cricket. You could be of different sizes and different shapes and you could still play the game. And I think he fell in love with that. At the highest level, like Colin Milburn or Jack Leach, you know, that's the glory of it, isn't it? That's really first-class players, terrific players, famous players. Or even the, you know, the recently, the uh, Shane Vaughan, who we so tragically lost recently, who was, uh, you know, one of the greatest players of all time, if not the greatest uh, spinner of all time who could go on to play, have such a great career, despite not being the fittest of them all. Yes, so Mike wrote uh, two extraordinary books about cricket. The first one was published even before this. I think this was it was published in 1994 called Anyone But England, which basically lit 
the fire until under the English cricket establishment and said that everything that you knew about cricket is bogus. Um, that's mm. sort of the summary of what uh, that book was. Also, the other thing about it, isn't it, I think is terribly important. It was 30 years ahead of its time. I mean, all the issues which cricket is dealing with at the moment, uh, the sort of the financialization of it, the racism in English cricket, these are all things which uh, Marcus E identified in this pioneering book, which aimed, earned the enmity of the British cricket establishment 30 years ago. Yeah, and uh, absolutely, absolutely correct. And what's happening in, in Yorkshire recently uh, has been described so lucidly in anyone but England 30 years ago about the racism in Hed at Headingley and in Yorkshire. Um, yes, and two years later, after the publishing Anyone But England, Mike Marcusi travelled to India, Pakistan and Sri Lanka for the 1996 Cricket World Cup. And he wrote this book called War Minus the Shooting, which is a travelogue, but also sort of a tour diary, as one would call in cricket, and just a remarkable work, also 30 years ahead of, it, of its time in the, sort of observing the political forces that were shaping India and Pakistan. In fact, he writes uh, a whole passage on Imran Khan, the politician. Imran Khan, of course, the current prime minister of Pakistan. And he also writes a lot about the Hindu chauvinism and the nationalism that was taking over at that time. And now, of course, uh, India is ruled by a party that is uh, quite uh, chauvinistic in those terms. Indeed, uh, according to Arundhati Roy and others, you know, pre-genocidal now in terms of it's, 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 it's a really serious issue. And, uh, and Marcusi, again, was talking about this 30 years ago. He was remarkable. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, he saw what several others who covered cricket on a daily basis didn't because he had this fresh perspective from the outside. He was also, you know, a political activist. And Marxist, he also, wasn't he? Um, he was Marxist. a Marxist. Uh, he was an activist. He was also an editor of a Marxist uh, uh, journal and magazine. And so he understood the, that the sport was being constantly shaped by the politics around it. And I don't think most cricket journalists understand that or even have the capacity to look at cricket in that way. And so Marcus, he was a absolutely fresh breath of air in that regard. Yeah, he described himself memorably as a deracinated New York Marxist Jew, which was not a mixture of things that normally write about um, English cricket, certainly not within the English cricket establishment. And yet, I mean, as you said, um, Siddhartha, he really had a genuine love of cricket, didn't he? And he formed not exactly some alliances, but a sort of some mutual under he had a mutual understanding with a lot of um traditionalists in the in the English game, didn't they? Um they both approached um you know commercialization and marketing as the enemy from different perspectives, but they both had a a vision of the game as being something that belonged to fans and and players, not to um not to commerce. Yeah, I think uh, reading Marcusi, one begins to understand uh, how polarised the current situation is in the world, where anybody who doesn't agree with you is basically, uh, you know, cancelled or is basically not, doesn't deserve to be heard. And social media, I think, has really exaggerated this uh, polarisation. But Marcusi is very interesting because he's able to uh, engage with uh, both the highly conservative as well as people on the extreme left and disagreeing with both. 
sometimes, not necessarily agreeing. For instance, in War Minus the Shooting, there is this passage where he uh, speaks to Michael Henderson mm. uh, of The Telegraph, who is on the on the right end of the spectrum in terms of his politics and who does not like uh, anyone but England. It's pretty clear from that. But mm. he's still, the two of them are still able to engage on cricketing issues and have a healthy debate on it. While at the same time, that later in the book, he also speaks to the Indian, uh, acclaimed Indian historian, uh, Ramachandra Guha, who is mm. on the left end of the spectrum. And of course, they both engage with each other and uh, talk about uh, cricket. But he also disagrees with a lot of uh, what Guha says. So Marcusi is not necessarily agreeing with the people of the same political bent as him. He's also yeah. disagreeing with them while he's engaging with people who have completely opposite political uh, ideologies to what he does. Um, I only say that the most bitter, as I'm sure you know, the most bitter feuds in politics are often between members of the left, I mean, um, rather than between left and right. And the publication that um, Marcusi edited for a long time, Labour Briefing, was, um, I can tell you as a participant in that civil war, was very much a part of Labour's almost interminable civil war. Um, he was a um, Labour left-winger. He was involved in a lot of, um, as indeed his partner, Liz Davis, was as a victim of um, a lot of local battles. She was uh, abruptly, as I remember, blacklisted from being a Labour candidate without any um, warning. So there was a lot, of, huh, a lot of bitterness between different parts of the left and different parts of the Labour Party in which she was involved. I'd like to, um, before we get too deeply into politics, I wanted to say... What a terrific travel book and what a terrific cricket book uh, is War Minus the Shooting. Marcusi watches cricket in the whole Indian subcontinent. He, it's a, he's watching the World Cup of 1996. That was the sporting event that had the greatest geographic spread of any single event in history, uh, being held in Pakistan, uh, in different parts of India and in Sri Lanka. And he, he, you know, he travelled to all three, and he really made an effort to look at um, cricket the way the fans would, were seeing it. And I love this passage in it. Uh, he says at the end, in spite of self-serving officials, vulgar profiteering and ugly zealotry, the tournament had proved a success, a giant subcontinental festival of cricket, whose impact could be seen in roadside darbers, College hostels, bazaars, buses, trains, maidans, and all the other locales where the unofficial culture of cricket is forged. And it, well, Beautiful. this book really captures that. Uh, it was it was an amazing um, event that Cricket World Cup. R Richard and I are privileged to know Arif Abassi, who who takes a major uh, appearance in that book, and in some ways I think was the financial genius. Certainly, listen to Arif uh, behind it, and. Um, I, I think that it was part of a reinvention of cricket, uh, masterminded by people like Arifa Bassi, who is a f keen fan of this podcast. I hope he hears this, mm. and um, I, I went on to sort of create a new, entirely new cricket world, the one we live in today, and we won a game, which Marquezi, uh foreshadows. Yeah, I mean, I was as a someone who was 15 years old in 1996. That World Cup was really formative for me. Uh, uh, you know, it sort of occupied such a large uh, part of uh, 
our consciousness at that time and talking about it, reading about it, it was much bigger than what, uh, say, uh, my older cousin had experienced in 1987, when India again also hosted a World Cup with Pakistan. But 1996 was just so much bigger. It was technicolor. It was, you know, there was a certain uh, electricity to that with day-night games and uh, the uh, cricket under lights and all the superstars that were playing at the time. I think uh, that World Cup really ushered in uh, something big for uh, cricket in the subcontinent, especially in India. And of course, it had that fairy tale result. Yes. Uh, one by and Sri it... Lankans. They suddenly blasted onto the world stage. And it had the final in Lahore. Now, how many more World Cup finals is Lahore going to host? We don't know. I mean, if ever, uh, I mean, and how many more World Cups are India and Pakistan going to host jointly? I mean, we are not in the near future, but we don't know. So a lot has changed politically uh, in the region. There's, in fact, that famous chapter in that book, War Minus the Shooting, where uh, a joint India-Pakistan team traveled to Sri Lanka before the World Cup in solidarity, mm. uh, saying that uh, it is safe to play in Sri Lanka. And that match was basically planned in a matter of a, two or three days. And for the Indian and Pakistani boards and for the Indian and Pakistani governments to be so uh, cooperative to have such a match um, seems unthinkable today. It is. It was a, uh, he's, and he describes it beautifully, um, especially that entry in the in the scorebook. What it, I can't remember which Sri Lankan batsman was out, but caught Tendulkar, bowled Wazim Akram. Yeah, yeah Kaluvitharana. Kaluvitharana, yeah. 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 Mm. Um, it's one especially entertaining chapter I found in War Minus the Shooting. It's um, perhaps a little bit at a tangent to um, Marcusi's kind of Marxist analysis and class analysis of it all, but it's the the chapter on, on sponsorship and the battle between Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Um <laughs> Coca-Cola spent an absolute fortune becoming the official soft drink of that World Cup. And Pepsi brilliantly exploit the fact that they're the unofficial soft drink. And drinking a Pepsi is therefore daring and um, rebellious. And they they pull in all the, um, don't they, Pepsi, pull in all the young fans, the biggest consumers of soft drinks anyway, because... Um, you know, drinking a Pepsi then becomes a statement, doesn't it? A statement of rebellion. Yes, uh, nothing official about it. Um, it was, uh, you know, one of the most famous lines from that World Cup. Nothing official about it. So, and and mm. Marcusy profiles that Pepsi executive uh, so well. I mean, that's one of the, you know, really engaging profiles written in that book uh, where he speaks to him and talks to him about Pepsi's plans and uh, sort of reveals... Uh, both the marketing uh, side of things as well as what Pepsi are really trying to do uh, in India and how dangerous that could be. The good thing about Marcus is he's not just observing. He's also at the end of it. He's telling you what he thinks of it. And he says, Pepsi has done a great job and this is great, uh, an ambush by them to actually spend no money and get all this marketing. But he also sees uh, this as a bit of a cynical move by them where they are trying to, you know, sell the game to people uh, without really, you know, looking at it as a game, but rather looking at it as a product. And so the Marxist side of Marxism does come out in the end, but it comes out after a lot of, you know, putting out what exactly is going on. It isn't it interesting 
that I think the three most uh, amazing or powerful or landmark books on cricket have all been written by people very much um, on the left. You start off with uh, C.L.R. James, who's written the great, you know, he's a Marxist, um, and he brings that. It's a sort of he's a literary Marxist, like like Marcusi, uh, and his Beyond the Boundary is acknowledged, I think, as the as the masterpiece. And then you've got Major Roland Bowen. I, I, oh, he's not a Marxist, but he's a radical or an anarchist. And his massive history, tremendous history of cricket, which completely redefines. And again, it's 50 years ahead of its time. Bowen, I think you should republish that. It's out of print, by the way. Oh, and, I'd love um, to. I think you should think about that. I, for me, that is... Richard and I are writing a history of cricket at the moment. Um, and... Uh, it's enormously important because he's got such an eye for the detail which conventional cricket historians simply ignore. And he's a he may not be a Marxist, he's a radical, isn't he, Richard? Well, he's a radical, isn't he? A, a iconoclast. Um, he argued in his lifetime, he argued with virtually everybody else who ever wrote about cricket, but especially the establishment, especially E.W. Swanton. Um, so... Uh, it's a wonder, it's a wonderful book. Rather difficult publishing job because it's a, it's a thick book. It's got a lot of detail. It's got a lot of maps, uh, and as I remember, and it's got a lot of um, it's got those very very detailed appendices Timelines. in column in column yeah. in yeah. columns at the end, um, which which save an awful lot of narrative in the main body of the book, but are rather difficult. Might be rather difficult to print, but. Ah, I mean, that's just uh, something to um, to overcome. It's it would be wonderful to republish that um, for a new generation. Um, it it end, the story ends in nineteen seventy. It just occurs to me that huh, I wonder if anybody would dare to update the story as Major Bowen might have seen it uh, from nineteen seventy onwards and follow through his analysis because he was so ahead of his time in in on so many issues. Um, but, it, but it is interesting, I think, that the the three the three historians or about cricket, the three writers on cricket who were who were way ahead of that time. Two of them were Marxists, one kind or another, and one was an anarchist. Yeah, the, the interesting thing though is that uh, the, the very very different books, uh, James and Marcusi, uh, the you know, if you take anyone but England, and if you take uh, Beyond the Boundary. Uh, the the approach to the writing and the approach to the subject is so different. I mean, James mm. was, uh, you know, revered uh, W. G. Grace and what he brought to, uh, you know, cricket in England and what a sort of a social institution that he built. In fact, the famous line he had, he said, "Bradman scored runs, uh, W. G. Grace uh, built a social institution." I mean, you know, uh, that it clearly shows that there was a certain love of uh, the Victorian uh, era cricket. From he also, James. He, he, James liked dead white authors, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he, <laughs> he did. He did. <laughs> he, I, he was a he was a big fan of uh, uh, that famous book. Uh, uh, oh, I forget the name now. Uh, was it okay? Anyway, uh, yes, he did like dead white authors. Uh, but Marcusi, I mean, he treats uh, Grace completely differently. In fact, he says W. G. Grace was a renowned cheat. Who actually used to, you know, who in the name of gamesmanship actually did a lot of things that went against the laws. So yeah, there's a there's a very different approach. And in fact, I would even say that this book, War Minus the Shooting, why it is really, you know, why many Indians and Pakistanis have fallen in love with this book is because Marcusi criticizes a lot 
in India and Pakistan and in the administration and in the cricket. But at the same time, he also has this genuine love for cricket and the subcontinent. And what was also 30 years ahead is how Marcus, he saw that India and Pakistan are going to be the center of cricket, especially India. He saw the economic potential for cricket in India well before a lot of people did. And so he realized that basically a lot of the English grumbling about the subcontinent is because they are losing a lot of their power that they had for a long time because they are mm. seeing the game moving in a direction that they don't want to see. And that they're not going to control. Um, yes. Ex exactly. Yeah. Although they still do, as we were discussing earlier, have uh, total control over the uh, laws of the game. Um, yeah, I, it does make me, reading Marcusy makes me think of a, the great, I think the greatest uh, English historian, British historian of the 20th century, A.J.P. Taylor, and his fourth lectures at Oxford in 1956, I think they were, which are available in The Troublemakers. It's the history of English radicalism. And uh, from Cobbett to, to Lansbury and, uh, yeah, and um, MacDonald uh, before World War One and so on. And it's, it, John Bright gets in there and he defines radicals as people who were not allowed into the political system at the time. They're hated and despised and generally don't achieve anything at all. Uh, and then, uh, of course, they form the thought of the next generation. Uh, and that's uh, they they shape the future, but not the present. It's it's, it's a and I think that applies to Marcusy and CLR and actually to Major Bowen. Absolutely, that's a profound uh, thought. That uh, you know these days uh, everyone wants to go viral, right? Everyone wants to be extremely popular at the moment. But Marcusy seems to have looked at things at a much wider lens in a historical perspective and said. It doesn't matter. I'm writing what I want to. <laughs> uh, Siddhartha, what would you... It seems to me that um, Marcus's remedy for what was wrong with global cricket in 1996, for the excessive commercialisation of the game, for the phony nationalism that he identified with the um, commercial exploitation of the game, um, his remedy, anyway, for all the ills of global cricket in 1996 is democracy in the game restored power for fans but um he'd be disappointed now to see the state of, of world cricket wouldn't he in the level of power given to fans because they become um there's even less democracy isn't there now in in world cricket and even less power for fans and even more fans are expected just to be sort of passive consumers of product aren't they yeah, I mean, that that was one of the criticisms of the book and a criticisms of Marcusy in general, that he uh, does say that democracy is the answer to everything, whether it's uh, cricket or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, in life, in, in countries. But he doesn't really go into the specifics of how things need to change. And in fact, even in the foreword, Gideon Haig has written that he doesn't um, detail how it should be done. He just says that democracy is the answer. And that becomes a problem because in, you know, the moment fans don't really have a sort of a legal stake in the matter. And if, you know, uh, if they, if the BCCI, for instance, doesn't even call itself, is calls itself a private club, uh, even though it's one of the richest bodies uh, in India, if not the world, it is a private club. And so the fans technically, uh, you know, have no real stake in it. Um, only the members of the club have uh, can decide 
how things will change. So the members of the BCCI, the various state associations and the various cricket clubs can decide the future of the BCCI, but the fans really can't. So there has to be a way in which the fans have a legal standing in the matter for democracy to actually work. But it doesn't seem to have happened. Yeah, it's it's um, taking you on from that. I mean, again, it's this amazing way in which he he sees the future. You know, if you think about it, the, you know, his analysis of the decline of England, English cricket, an incompetent ruling class, you know, the advent of market forces which are out of control, it exactly describes the catastrophe which is the English cricket board at the moment. And, um, the, and with no values, worship of, 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 of the, nat- the next check, wherever it's, it's coming from, and a almost complete contempt for the history or the sort of nature uh, of, the, of the game. Uh, and a little, uh, and I, I think Marcusy really saw that 30 years ago. Yeah, I think what he felt really bad about is as somebody who was new to the game, relatively new to the game, he had become so fond of it and attached to the history of the game Mm. and how it really took shape in England. And he also understood that, you know, the contest between batters and bowlers was essentially an economic battle between the aristocrats and the, you know, the the plebeians, as one would call them. As Duncan Stone has uh, so beautifully said in his recent book, and he was, of course, one of the guests on your show, uh, Marcus, he saw all that, and he saw the frictions in the game, the societal pressures in the game, and then he sees the English cricket board, who seem to have understood absolutely nothing about all this, in spite of having grown up in the country and having been sort of immersed in cricket, the history of the game and its uh, beauty seems to have just passed them by. They actively don't like it. Exactly. Yeah, and I think he was deeply pained by that and his anger is largely a result of that. So, as you know, Marcus's first book about cricket was actually a novel, wasn't it? It He wrote a novel called Slow Turn. Yes, uh, which is which is set in India. I've not read it all, but it's um, it looks pretty fascinating. Have you read it? Have, uh, have you read it by any chance? Yes, I I have read it. It's a very interesting book. It's very unlike Marcusy, what you would expect from Marcusy. Um, it just seems to have been something that uh, he wished to write based on his experiences at the time. It starts, of course, uh, the first line is about the murder of an umpire. And so that sets the stage for a sort of a murder sort of thriller in the book. He brings in a lot of, uh, you know, uh, aspects of uh, South India in that book as well. It's it's very interesting, though, if you just pick it up without knowing who wrote it, there's no way that you'd know it was written by Mike Marcusy. Interesting. Is it a, is it a good novel, um, just from the ordinary canons of literature? Is it, a, you know, is it well, is it well plotted? Is it... Um... You know, it's got interesting characters, dialogue, setting. It's definitely an interesting read, whether yeah. it would... Yeah. I don't know if it would really make any awards lists, but oh. it's a good read, for sure. Good read. Okay, good. Has it got TV or film possibilities? <laughs> maybe. I have to actually ask Liz, and maybe I can get the rights for that as well. <laughs> just, I'm gonna, yes, that's a, that's a thought. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, indeed. Perhaps, um, Siddhartha, to, can I move on to ask, just how did you based in Seattle, which I only know as uh, the headquarters of Microsoft. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, how did you come come to get, get involved in publishing uh, this uh, cricket book? 
Well, yeah, as I said, I mean, I've, I've always been writing on cricket for a long time. In fact, I used to work full time for uh, ESPN Crick Info from 2003 to 2008. I was their uh, cricket reporter uh, based in India and also uh, did a lot of, uh, I was an assistant editor. That was my uh, sort of uh, designation. But then in 2008, I moved to the US to uh, study a bit of journalism and also try my, try my hand at other types of journalism. I worked as a business journalist in the Wall Street Journal for a couple of years, and and then I, you know, well, went. That's impressive. Yes, and I went on to freelance. Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, I went on to freelance on various other topics. I kept in touch with cricket always. Uh, I wrote a, I wrote for Cricket Info once in a while. I had a blog, and uh, in the last couple of years, I've had a podcast. Uh, I've had a column. So yes, I've been in touch with cricket, even though I've been living in the states. Uh, I don't like to boost a competitor, never. Uh, uh, but uh, Richard, do you think we ought to allow Siddhartha to tell us, <laughs> tell tell our listeners who about his podcast, so they can well, listen to it? No, I think so. I think they've got room for. They won't listen to listen to more than one. Tell us the why eighty one not out, eighty one all out. Excuse me. Yeah, eighty one all out. Yes. Mm. So in nineteen ninety seven, uh, India went to the West Indies. There was a Test match in Barbados where India had to chase one hundred and twenty to win a series for the first time since 1971 and they were 81 all out they oh, failed to chase that game they were 81 all out and that was like a scar that uh, many of us have felt over the years and for anyone who was who grew up watching indian cricket in the 1990s all you have to say is 81 all out and they'll know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> that's interesting because there's this kind of nostalgia in england for the england team of the 1990s and how awful it was to watch uh, Absolutely. Of, lots of people write about that. Yes, Marcus, he writes about that uh, quite a lot. And he even goes to the extent of saying that I will not watch a single game that England play in the 1996 World Cup because I have no interest in that team, which <laughs> is showing no enterprise and no imagination. And he was right about that, wasn't he? Well, he was right. And an interesting uh, sort of afterward to that is Mike Arthurton, who was the captain of that 1996 team, uh, has actually endorsed this book uh, very lavishly on the cover. And when I wrote to Mike, uh, I mentioned to him that I don't know if you would really have great memories of this book, but we'd love for you to know, uh, have, have your thoughts on the cover. And he said, yes, it's a classic book, though I have some dodgy memories of that book myself. <laughs> <laughs> He, um, one um, one of the many issues that um, Marxy anticipates right at the end of um, War Minus the Shooting is the pressure to introduce cricket in the United States. There's a closing bit where the them you know the United States is targeted as a market for cricket. Now you're you're based in Seattle, the home of Microsoft, and Microsoft have become big sort of patrons and pushers of American cricket, haven't they? Absolutely. Uh, one thing about the Marcusi passage, though, is that at the time in the 90s, when India and Pakistan were set to play a series of games in Canada, uh, there was this talk about uh, popularizing cricket in the in North America and taking the game there. But Marcusi saw through that in no time. He said, <laughs> this is done purely as for TV rights. This is because when games are played in North America, in the mornings, they happen at prime time in India, and all that these people are trying to do is get more people to watch that on TV. So he saw through that straight away, and as we see 30 years later, there hasn't really been a push by uh, any of these countries to popularize the game in the US. Uh, but yes, there are people within the United States, like Microsoft and their current CEO, Satya Nadella, 
who grew up in India and who's a massive cricket fan and who writes a lot about cricket in his book. Uh, his uh, uh, autobiography, in fact, has uh, uh, bits of how he played cricket and loved cricket. And many of his uh, management lessons take analogies from cricket and teamwork and things like that. This is very cheerful. So Microsoft is based on a sort of... Tell us more about... What's his name again? The CEO? Satya Nadella. And where is he from? Uh, he is from uh, uh, India. I think he's from Andhra Pradesh in India. Uh, but he studied, he, di he did his college in India before moving to the States in the 90s. And he loves his cricket and he's imported it and he makes it part of the culture of the greatest computer company the world has ever known. Yes, he has. And uh, he brings in a lot of cricket analogies uh, when he's talking about leadership. And, uh, you know, he has actually uh, made a push to have a number of really good cricket grounds in Seattle where Microsoft like employees can play, but they also uh, occasionally lease the ground out to other people and rent the ground out to other people to come and enjoy a good game of cricket. Peter de la Pena, whom we had as a guest, who's a great expert on uh, the, perhaps almost the authority on American cricket, uh, was a guest on a podcast um, some time ago. I think he mentioned um, Microsoft's patronage and the, the patronage that other Americans have prominent Americans of Indian extraction are giving to the game, but he's, he was worried that about two things in American cricket right now. It's, he thought it was far too much top-down that they were building, you know, that they were trying to build national sides and franchises uh, rather than from the grassroots, and he was also worried that it, the game was simply too identified with, um, with Indian Americans and not with the mass of the population. Just wondered um, what you thought of those observations from what you've seen. I think so. I think a large uh, proportion of people who follow cricket in the United States follow international cricket. They don't necessarily have any idea of what is happening in cricket in the USA. Uh, of course, people like Peter have played a big role in informing people of what is happening and of the United States team and of the various other uh, political wranglings that's happening there. But the I think it is the next generation that will have to really take it up. So it's not the people who moved from India. It is actually their children who hopefully will get an opportunity to play cricket, uh, to learn cricket from a very formative stage, and then to form a community of cricket lovers and cricket watchers and, and cricketers. If there were one thing that occurs to me that if Microsoft could do for um, American cricket and American young American cricketers, it's to provide scholarships and cricket careers in the way that you can get a scholarship for American football, for basketball, and for so many other for baseball, and for so many you know, American sports. If you could look to make a career out of cricket in, in the United States in the same way, I'm sure that would make the game take off. I think so. And I think one of the really untapped sources of talent that you could find is that there are a number of uh, people who play baseball till the school level and then drop out. They never play baseball after that. But if those same players, if those same baseballers, failed baseballers, and I put the failed in quotes because, you know, obviously they have not failed. Uh, if those baseballers can then uh, be drawn into cricket, to play cricket in the club or something, they, because they have the talent, they have the hand-eye coordination, and they understand what it means for to hit the ball, the swing of the bat. They understand these things. So if they can be drawn into cricket, then you'll have quite a large proportion of people who will be playing the game. Well, they'll raise the standard of fielding. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The fielding is definitely much higher in baseball than in cricket, but cricket's getting there. True. So, Jonathan, um, we've discussed a few titles that you might um, target for um, your next um, publishing venture, but have you, have you identified any yourself? Uh, is there any, any books you're looking to, you're yourself looking to republish? Yeah, we've, we've been in talks with a few writers. Uh, Mike Coward, you know, the illustrious Australian mm-hmm. cricket writer and journalist, he wrote this fantastic book called Cricket Beyond the Bazaar that mm-hmm. came out in, in Pakistan. Yes, it's a super very book. nice yeah. book. Mm-hmm. We relied on it in our own, own work. In yes, Pakistan, and he really, has been yeah. kind enough to uh, give us the rights to that book. So hopefully that will be coming out soon. And uh, yes, and uh, oh, there is another great. book which you might have read during your research, which was written by... Uh, an academic, actually, Professor Richard Cashman, about mm. cricket in India in the 60s and 70s. It's called uh, The Patrons, Players and the Crowd. Mm. And it's it's a remarkable uh, work that was that came out in 1979. But uh, the Professor Cashman has really, you know, done some phenomenal interviews of players and administrators from the 50s and 60s, many of whom are gone now. And uh, he's put together this book, and uh, it's it's another great book which we're hoping to get at some point. Mm. So, those titles are very much to look forward to uh, for all cricket lovers, cricket readers. Thank you for joining us today, and best of luck with um, eighty one all out as as a podcast and as a publisher. Thank you so much, Peter and Richard. It was a real privilege to chat with you today. Thank you, Atidata, a lovely conversation. It's goodbye from me, Peter Oborn, In It's clouded over oh. in Wiltshire. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller. The sun's come out in southeast London. <laughs>